Well, we are picking up tonight in first in Colossians 1. And uh, we finished last week that beautiful prayer, Paul teaching us. And, you know, when I look at those prayers, I'm like, wow, I really don't know how to pray. Um, but yet when I read his prayer, I realize I need to memorize these prayers. I, I, rem I memorized the, the prayers here and out of Ephesians and so forth back when I was in high school. And I just pray them for myself. People that come on my heart, I just pray them for them because I knew I was praying in the perfect will of God uh, if I'm praying inspired scripture, right? And so as we pray here tonight out of Colossians chapter 1, those verses from verses 9 through um, 14, it just, uh, let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to fill us up with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing you, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, O oh God. Strengthen us with all might according to your glorious power. And we would have joy as we endure in patience and long suffering with all joy. And we thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you gave us your only begotten Son, that you could qualify us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Hmm. Holy, blameless, perfect, standing before you. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood through your death and resurrection that all these things become possible because you paid the price that we could not pay. And you gave us the gift of salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness and robes of righteousness for all of eternity, just like your robe. And we thank you, Lord, now that you would be gracious to give us ears to hear all that your spirit is saying to the church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these next few verses, they are thought to be a poem or a song, probably verses 15, maybe all the way up to verse 20, but for sure verses 15 through 18. And it starts like this in Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word in the Greek, image, is the word icon. Now, it's sort of cool. Because we're in the computer age, we use that Greek word now. We don't even know we're using a Greek word. But if you want the power of a program, I had some friends back in the early days when they were just programming and programming, and it would just be gazillions of lines of data and information. And, and of course, um, just thousands of man hours. And of course, once the program's built, they, they keep adding to it and refining it. But we know what that's like, right? Like you, you push on your computer on the desktop there, or now on your cell phone or iPad, you push the icon. And then up comes all that's within that. Now, if they just showed you thousands of pages of programming lines, it probably wouldn't do you any good at all, would it? Even if you're a programmer, you'd have to spend probably days, maybe weeks, trying to figure out what it was they were doing and what all those lines of data even mean. And then finally you figure it out, you know, it's a newspaper. <laughs> you can, you, or you can, it has a word processor or whatever it is. But the icon tells us that there are lots of information out there and that this icon has a, is attached to a program that is very sophisticated and uh, it's done it in such a way that dummies can use it, right? And, and, and they take all this brilliant information 
and then they create it in such a way by clicking on various pictures, icons, or lines that we have this vast program made easy for us to see and understand. And so we, we can see that now, right? God, the infinite God, where could we even begin? Just lines and lines of data as we looked at the universe, as we looked at a little tiny amoeba, or look in the face of a little puppy, you know? What was God thinking? That thing looks at you and, you know, its ears are flapping and starts licking your face and take a little puppy and put it by a baby laying in the ground and, and, and just, you'll hear that little baby laugh. It's, it's amazing. The incredible things. I, I know holding my babies when they first came out and you're looking at this thing and you're just in awe going, look at that little fingernail factory. Look at that little hair factory. If I could open them up, I would see a digestion system that, yeah, we figured out how it works, but we really don't know, do we? Oh, well, it's all body, it's all earth. You know, you have the seed go into the egg and where do you get the personality then? <laughs> where, do you, where do you get the soul and the spirit? Exactly what DNA is that? We, we know that the physical body of a man it is far more than just the material components of him, right? And so now we try to understand our creator. And we can look at creation. It's called the general revelation of God. Romans says it's enough that the most foolish person who's ever existed will have no excuse to know by looking at creation, there had to be a designer, a creator, a great mind, a greater mind than we've ever seen on planet earth. And then of course, the power. I mean, we can think up all kinds of cool things. I, I, I thought up a car that, that is like a hover car, right? Like, like remember Back to the Future, they had the hoverboard? I can think that up, but can anybody make it? I don't think so. <laughs> but yet, the things that we see were thought up, and then the power to make them. And so we see the revelation of creation, of course, now with the Hubble telescope going way out there. We've had people for thousands of years speculating what would be on the farthest star we could see. Of course, then we got telescopes and we could see farther. And it was sort of what we expected to see. A little closer up to Saturn and see a little past Saturn and see some rings a little clearer and realize that they're thicker and more matter than what it looked like. It's not just a pocket of air. It's actually some pretty solid material. But now this Hubble has gone out there and they're positive. We are gonna see planets exactly like Earth. <laughs> and we are gonna see that there are other systems that are probably even superior to Earth. But when you think about it, our nitrogen-oxygen balance, so we can all breathe here, is so precise. You go down below sea level very much, you're paying the price. You go up above sea level too much, you pay the price. But yet, where we live, where most people can exist, there's that perfect balance. And we've seen it now. We, we know that the gravitational pull from the moon on our Earth, it's incredibly precise. 
If that moon were to move just a little bit farther, we wouldn't have enough gravity to clean the oceans. In a matter of days, they would be polluted. If that moon were to come just a little bit closer, we would be in tidal waves, the water covering the planet. Nobody's going to be billing on the beach in Malibu anymore. <laughs> but yet, there they go, spending millions of dollars, trusting that the high tide is how it's going to come. And they'll sleep soundly at night, knowing that that gravitational pull is going to hold true. And of course, the sun, a little tiny bit farther. We all live on a polar ice cap. A little bit closer, and everywhere's the desert. And it can just keep on going, can't we? And so we have this general revelation through creation. But God, how do you reveal? How do you explain? Now, let's say you have a real great heart for creation. And you walk out one night, and you open your trash can to throw some trash in, and there you see a, an entire creation of maggots. This world of maggots. And they're crawling and they smell and, but you're going, I want them to know me. <laughs> and I want them to know how much I love them. And I am willing to die a torturous death that the revelation of who I am could be revealed to that maggot. You think you'd have much luck? I, I love that story Chuck Smith used to always tell. A lady going off to the Christmas Eve service and her husband, not a believer in God, said, no, 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 I'm not going to go, you go. And he was sitting there in his living room and this bird comes crashing against his window as he's looking outside. And uh, he walks out and the bird flies away. A few minutes later, wham, trying to get onto the inside of the warmth of his living room. He opens up the door even though it's freezing outside. He stands in front of the window trying to wave to the bird trying to somehow communicate to that little bird that he's more than happy for him to come and share his warm house, even though it's a wild creature with all kinds of diseases probably. Come on in anyway. But he can't do it. And he's sitting there trying to think up some kind of system. And eventually the bird crashes against the window for the final time and dies. And the Lord spoke to him as clearly as could be that he was crashing up against God's window and that God had communicated, if you're willing to listen. And so Jesus is the image of God. Jesus, the word Joshua in English, Yahshua in the Hebrew, Yah, God, Shua, salvation. Emmanuel, God with us. God, our salvation. And he has now said, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to be the icon. And, and if you push on the icon of Jesus, if you would, you could get the whole program. All of the zillions of lines of information can now be utilized by you. And so this word, image, it is a word that means, the, in this context, a perfect likeness, not just similarity. A matter of fact, if that was the, what Paul wanted to communicate, there was another Greek word, homoiama. And that word means similar to. But Paul didn't use that word. He uses the word icon. 
which is an understanding of an exact semblance. You're getting exactly what um, is unseen, can be unknown. It's way too vast and complicated. That same word's used in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4 whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image icon of God, should shine on them. So here again, it, it says that Jesus is there. He is the icon, but yet those who are blinded will not get it. Hebrews 1 verses one through the beginning of three. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being in the brightness of his glory, and here it is, the expressed image of his person. This word image is, our word character, and it looks very similar in the Greek transliteration. Jesus is the exact character of God. He's the exact person of God. And he is now in a way that we can reach him through this icon, through this person, Jesus Christ, who's the full expression Philip and the disciples, like us, it's a process. He, he didn't get it. And Jesus says, I'm going away. And, and Philip felt like, you've not delivered. <laughs> you said you are the way unto the Father. You are the door in which we go through to come to the Father. And, and you've not given us that yet. And you guys know that passage in John 14, verse 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying, I am God. There is no substance, there is no character, there is no reality of God that is not also in the Son. And that if you've seen the Son, then you are seeing the program. You're seeing the substance. You're seeing the character. There is nothing different. When you see the Father, you're going to see God. Now, let me just step back a minute and go into the Old Testament and just make this point incredibly clear. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the great verse of the Jewish faith, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One Lord. How many gods do we have? One. That's it. Now what's interesting in this very emphatic verse is the Hebrew words chosen to say it. We don't get it in the English, but believe me, in the Hebrew, it's plain. First of all, the Lord our God. That word God is Elohim. Now understand, there's a clear word in the Hebrew, El, God singular. There's another word, Ela, which means two or more. And then there's Elo, it means two, excuse me, Ela. And then Elohim is, is three or more. In other words, the Lord our God is in a plural form, not a singular form. Secondly, we look at the next word, one. 
There is a clear Hebrew word, yakid, that means singular one, like a fork, a spoon, a stick. It's, it's singular. But that's not the word used here. The word that's used here is a cod, which is a compound unity, like the engine of a car. <laughs> one engine, but many moving parts. And so the Lord, our Elohim, plural form of God, is one ikad, not a single unity, but a compound unity, is this one Lord. So understand, we have one God. But yet he has revealed himself in three persons. I want to go back and look at the Nicene Creed and then the Westminster Confession. These guys are geniuses. It's a matter how it's amazing how many smart things we could do if we didn't have the television and cars and radios. If we just had to sit around and look at a tree or a mountain, we, we would say smart things like this too. But here's what the Nicene Creed, written in 325 AD. We believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And we believe in the Holy Ghost, who is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. The Westminster Confession says this, there is but one living and true God. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is one, neither begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we have one God, but he's revealed himself in three persons. Now, if you look at creation, that's exactly what we got. God made all things in, in his image, in his likeness. So in other words, if I were a psychologist and you have a six-year-old kid that's been traumatized, and we're not sure what's going on, we would put a piece of paper in front of them, some crayons, and say, draw. And what's inside them will come out on the paper, right? And so we are looking at a world that is from the inside of God. It's his nature. It's his thought processes. It's the beauty that's in him. It's the power and the majesty. You say, man, I saw some of those pictures from the, the Hubble. <laughs> it's incredible out there. Yeah, but eyes not seen, ears not heard, <laughs> nor has even entered into the heart of man the things that God's prepared for us. If, if you would, what we see now is doo-doo compared to what we're going to see when we have a new heavens and a new earth. It's only the first of, of God's creation, and it wasn't hard for him. It wasn't like, man, that's a pretty star, but oh, i got to come up with a prettier one. Man, how am I going to do that? How am I going to outdo myself? It was no sweat. It took him just six days and just one day to make all the vast stars. And so we have this one God in one substance, but yet three persons. So you look at it, and you know nothing in our entire universe would exist without three. Not two, not five, but three. For example, let's say we have a butcher block paper here, and I'm going to roll it out from that wall of the sanctuary and roll it out, and it touches the other sanctuary. And I say, how much paper do you got there? You would multiply the width, right? The thickness of it by the width of it by the length of it. Now, let's take the width away. What do you have? 
It disappeared, didn't it? <laughs> what if you take the length away? What do you got? Nothing. It disappears again. Guess what? The chair you're sitting in is the same way. You're the same way. Our planet's this way. Nothing could exist without three. Time. Past, present, future. You know, we wouldn't have this very second we're in right now if they all three didn't exist. And so we know we exist in this moment and there had to be a beginner of that. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. So in the beginning, somebody started the first second. That's a fact. Because if time was infinite, we couldn't even be here today. Because you, you have to have time in, in order to come to this second. And so, again, you can just keep on going down in creation. And you'll see this over and over again. Uh, I have a teaching on the Trinity and go into a lot of examples and a lot of scriptures and can't do that tonight. But Jesus is the icon. Notice how he says it in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I mean, you got to be infinite to understand infinite, right? The finite cannot understand the infinite. And if you can, it's not infinite, right? I mean, just by the pure, the pure fact, if I can understand God perfectly, I'm God. And so Jesus is saying, no one knows me <laughs> except somebody exactly like me who's also infinite. My father, and I know the father because I'm infinite. In John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him, explained him. He's now brought this infinite God for us to understand in part, in portion. And so the God it says the only begotten son. This term is only used of Jesus. We would probably say the only, the unique, one of a kind, the second person of the Trinity. And in verse 15, he goes on to say, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that's, that makes sense. I mean, we would first say, yeah, God's invisible. He's spirit, we're not. We're corporeal. He's incorporeal. Of course, we can't see him. But it, it's far more than that. Actually, today, you know, languages are always evolving. And the word that we would use today is he is the image of the unknowable God. One who can't be known. And again, he's infinite. And, and so Jesus is the exact image of an unknowable God. It's, it's always funny how people say, well, I'm an atheist. You, you, you know, nobody can be an atheist. It's impossible. Because you say, well, I'm an atheist. So you've been everywhere in the entire universe and there's no God? No, actually, I, I've never really traveled much out of California. <laughs> yeah, well, I can see why you think that. But... Um, do you understand you would have to be everywhere in the universe in all of time? Well, I, I did. I was in all the universe last week. But what about 10 zillion years ago? And what about 10 zillion years in the future? Do you understand? You'd have to be everywhere at once, seeing everything and knowing everything at once, in all of time at once, and there's no God. I know, because you're God. <laughs> to do what you just did, you are God. You, you see, it's, it's illogical. That's why people that are a little smart say, well, I'm an agnostic. God's unknowable. Well, I agree. If you don't have Jesus in his scripture, uh, he's unknowable outside of creation. But that's enough for you to say God wants to be known. 
because he's made it clear in his creation, he wants us to know him. And so the general revelation should lead us to a, a specific, a desire to be a specific revelation. And so we know that this creator could not have started and begun. He had to have always existed, and then he started this. And this is where people say, well, where did things come from? The Big Bang. Where did that matter come from? Where did the power come from? Well, it came out of space. Where did space come from? Do you understand? I mean, you, you, you have to have something at the beginning. And those who don't want to believe in God say, in the beginning was what? Space, matter, power, energy. It existed. And this what, without a mind, without a design, had an explosion, and then an incredible design came from that. When you, when you start thinking about it, it just, it, it just, it's impossible. Because if Darwin was correct, then everything on the planet would have been gray. Every animal, every food. Because if you're trying to survive, you, you don't want to stand out, be this red frog <laughs> or this bright bird. And, and, the, and the fact is, is we look at creation and you got this incredibly beautiful orange and a red apple, this yellow banana, different shapes, different sizes, different flavors, all of them appealing. The juices that come out of them, the flavors of them. A what created all that? And then you look at the unique fingerprint of all of us. Our unique DNA, our unique personalities. A what made that? You, you see, it, 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 it defies logic to say in the beginning was a what. In the beginning, there was a who. We know there had to be a beginning. Why do we know that? Because things are running down. We, we know that the sun is burning up. We know that the usable energy is being used up. The first law of thermodynamics is all that exists, exists, and it can't stop existing, and no more can come in to start existing. The second law of thermodynamics is all usable energy is being used up. And so if you can use up energy, it's not infinite, right? There had to be a beginning of that energy. There had to be the first spinning of the top. But what they're trying to tell you is that in the beginning, the, the top was spinning already. The first click on the clock was already there. It couldn't have always been there. It had to start. The Big Bang started time. It's, it's, it's beyond reason and any reasonable person You've got to harden your heart to, to even consider such ludicrous thinking. And so we see throughout the scriptures, Moses, it says he talked to God as one man talked to another. But yet in Exodus, he says, God, I want to see your face. I want a closer net. I want a closer picture of you. And he says, nobody can see my face and live. And again, in Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, I alluded to this verse. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it in to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The unknowableness about God has been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead. There had to be the... First domino, right? Somebody had to push the first domino. There had to be the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, so that they are without excuse. God is saying, just by the way creation is made, there is nobody that's going to stand before God and say, I'm an atheist, and, and give some logical reasoning 
um, or I'm an agnostic, I just didn't know, and it fly. And in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen and amen. And then the last part of verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, and now he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, your, your, your first reaction to this, reading in English, would say he was the first created thing. And it, it, it could mean that. Of course, if it were to mean exactly that, Paul would have used a different Greek word. He would have used prototokesis. That's not the word he used. He used prototokos. Because this word firstborn, again, they didn't have a word at this time in the Greek. We would today say the preeminent one, the one above all. You say, well, how, how do we know that? That's what Paul meant. It's all through the Bible. We go back in, in the Old Testament. You might remember that story when Joseph brought his two boys to his dad, Jacob. And he had his older son on his right hand, Manasseh. And then he had his younger son, Ephraim, on his left hand. And Jacob, they all bowed and closed their eyes, began praying. And Jacob switched his hands. <laughs> and put his right hand on the younger son. And Joseph interrupts the prayer and says, Dad, no, this is the older son. He said, no, he's not. And later on in Jeremiah 31, 9, he says plainly, Ephraim, God speaking, Ephraim is my firstborn. Was he literally the first one born? No. Um, Manasseh was, but he is the preeminent one over uh, his brother, David, we know he was the youngest and had many brothers. But yet, in Psalms 89, 27, he says, and I will make him, David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We know that Esau was born first. But yet, in Exodus 4, 22, it says, Israel, or Jacob, is my firstborn. We know Isaac was born after Ishmael. But yet, God calls Isaac. Abraham's firstborn. This term is used many times of Jesus and Romans and Revelation. And um, as a matter of fact, in, in just a minute in verse 18, it's going to tell us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Well, is Jesus the first one raised from the dead? No, we go back to the Old Testament. People were raised from the dead there, right? Did Jesus raise people from the dead before he was raised from the dead? Yes. But who is the most important person who ever raised from the dead? <laughs> if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're all still going to be in our sins. So Jesus is the preeminent one, the greatest one that raised from the dead, and he actually made a way that all of us, not just like Lazarus, be raised from the dead and then go, oh man, I'm out of heaven, I'm here on earth, yuck. Um, and then he'd have to die again. I think that was pretty bad, dying the first time. He's all sick and getting weak and, you know, and, and, and then he dies. I think that's pretty hard to do. Second Corinthians 5 says it's not a natural thing. Our bodies are made to fight that and resist that and, and hate that, and, and it's a traumatic thing until we leave the body and our necks, and then the trauma's over. And so Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's not the first one created. He is the one preeminent over all creation. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they just quickly say, oh, he, he was uh, the first. So, so, so God created the first, Jesus, and then Jesus started creating everything else. So the Jehovah Witnesses, they diminished Jesus by saying, well, Jesus was an angel, and then later he became God. You can't start being God. You either always have always existed, or you haven't. You can't start always having existed. And, and so here again, the Mormons, they, they try to say, well, Jesus, God created him. He was a man on another planet. The Book of Mormon says um, on Koloth, 
another planet. It's out there. The Hubble saw it the other day. <laughs> and, and, and he was a really good Mormon there. And so was his brother Lucifer. Ah. I think Satan really likes that. I think Satan loves Mormonism. He's equal to Jesus there. That's what he wants, right? And, and they prove themselves worthy. And so now Elohim, their father, says, you can have your own planet. And he gave Jesus a choice of earth and made Lucifer mad. And so, you know, he's, he's the God of his own planet, but he's sure mad at Jesus trying to hurt things here. You know how brothers can be. It diminishes Jesus. How it upsets the father. And in verse 16, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. Uh, the literal translation is by him all things stand created or remain created. Everything in the heavens and in the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. In John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Do you realize that has to exclude Jesus? Everything was made that was made once Jesus was created. After the Father created Jesus, then everything that's made, he made it. That's not what it says there. There is nothing that's ever been made. In Hebrews 1, 2, has in these last days, it says, he has spoken by his son in whom he has appointed heir of all things. Listen, through whom he also made the, what? Worlds. This is what he goes on to say. The visible world and the invisible world. He made the world where there's angels, these spiritual beings. And then he made earth and we have physical beings, man. No matter what the, the type of angel, archangel or lesser than an archangel, or the seraphim or the seraphim, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see not all angels are angels. <laughs> Some angels uh, don't look like the other angels at all. With the seraphim, we know have six or, or four wings, two to, to cover the feet, two to cover the face, and, or six wings, and two to fly with. So there are various creatures that are going to blow our mind. And those, some of those are fallen creatures like Lucifer, who was the number one above all the angels. And he now is Satan and all those angels that fell with him are demons. But he is still very much Lord of all. We see in Job where Satan has to come and say, can I touch Job? Uh, he's Lord of all. He's over everything. Satan knows that he is limited and that his time is going to be up one of these days. All things are created through him. In Hebrews 1.5, I love this. It says, for those who want to minimize Jesus, saying he's just an angel or an evolved angel or the greatest angel who's now been promoted to be God or the status title of God. It says in Hebrews 1.5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. None. <laughs> And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. Skipping on down to Hebrews 1, 7 and 8. And of, the, and of angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers of flames of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The father would not say that of Jesus lest it were true. And then not only that, but he is, all things are for him. Revelation 4.11 says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were, you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. I, I, I like the old King James better on this. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And this is what it says, for thy pleasure. They are, they are and were created. Do we get that? It was all for God's pleasure. And right now, all the things he created without free will are all living for his pleasure. 
The trees, the Bible says, lifting their hands. The limbs clap, clatter, clapping their hands. Sun's coming up, sun's going down. The birds are in there. Flight path that God has set up, pretty magnificent flight path, some of them. But us who now are surrendered to God, we should not live for ourselves or even our families, or even our kids. We should live for God's pleasure. I, I, I hit that point in life. You know, I, I've got arthritis and a lot of metal, two knee, knee, knee replacements and an ankle replacement. And, you know, everything sort of hurts, you know. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you guys are going, oh, brother, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I went through a very dark time trying to figure out pain and the medications the doctor were giving to me. And, and, and my prayer was just to die every day. But even now, I mean, I pretty much wake up going, Lord, this is the day you've made. If you want me to live in it, I would rather uh, not. But in reality, I'm focused on me. All things have been created for, well, my pleasure, and I can't, I'm not very pleasurable here anymore, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Pleasure's up. My, you know, pain versus pleasure, you know, I hit the, the balance, I'm ready to be out of this body and present with the Lord. But yet, Lord, it's for your pleasure. I remember when Corey Timboom, she was now up in her 90s. She had traveled the world telling her story about how Jesus was with her in the Holocaust and, and in the concentration camp. And, and she would say, I've been to the deepest hole that, that devils or man can find, and Jesus was there. But then she couldn't. She couldn't see anymore. She couldn't really walk. She was bedridden. And she called in Pastor Chuck and just said, I need to just die. There's nothing else I can do. And, and Chuck said, no, the greatest ministry you have now is just praying for all those seeds that you planted. And her, I want to live. I want to wake up. I can't move. I can't see. I can't walk. But I'm here for God's pleasure. And, and guess what? I can stay right here and pray and pray. I can't go to church, but I can pray for those who are at church. I can't go out and meet people like I used to, but I can pray for all the people that God's Wanting, and, and so she, she had a revival in her heart to continue to live as long as the Lord wanted her, even in that bedridden state, because she wasn't living for her pleasure. It's for his pleasure. We are, and we're created. Well, in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So again, he is before. He's the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, um, he is not created. He has always existed. And you say, well, how can that be? It has to be. <laughs> there has to be somebody out there who not, was not created but has always existed in order for us to be here today. In John 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do? In the next verse, they, they picked up stones to stone him because he knew that he was using the title that God used with Moses at the burning bush. And then in, in John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said God was his father making himself equal with God. They clearly understood that Jesus had said repeatedly that I am God. I am equal to God. I and the Father are one. We look in Isaiah, several passages, but in chapter 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There, there can't be anybody that, that can never, that have always existed unless you've always existed. And if you've always existed, you're always going to exist. But what does Jesus say about himself in Revelation twenty two thirteen? 13? Jesus speaking says, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God says, I alone can claim this. And Jesus says, I can claim that. And then he says, in him all things consist. They hold together. He's the sustainer and maintainer. Boy, that's true about us. Jesus needs to be over all our lives. In that area that Christ isn't over all, it starts falling apart until we put Jesus on the throne of our life again. We know this is true in science. Um, D.L. Chestnut of the San Diego Creation Science Research Center writes in his book, The Atom Speaks. He says this, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he's now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged and eight with no charge. Earlier physicists had discovered that the like charges of electricity, like magnetic poles, repelled each other. And unlike charges of magnetic poles, attract each other. And the entire history of the electrical phenomena, the electrical equipment, had been built upon these principles known as the Coulomb's law of uh, electronicity, elect thank you, that word, force, <laughs> and the law of magnetism. What was wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Carl K. Dorr, a physicist of Bell AT&T Laboratories, he says this, you grasp what this implies? It implies that all the mass nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of inhibition is also secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. Here's another physicist, George Gamow, one of the originators of the Big Bang Theory. The fact we live in a world in which particularly every object is potential nuclear explosion without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulty that attend the starting of the nuclear reaction. In essence, these guys say, you've got these positive eight electrons, and so you would think you got eight negative equal in power, like a magnet either holding it together and somehow, but that's not what you have. You have eight neutral protons. And so he's saying, how is the atoms staying together? When I grew up in a kid, they, they called it uh, atomic glue. <laughs> Um, now they, they came up with the more sophisticated term, strong nuclear force. What, what is that strong nuclear force? We have no idea. Matter of fact, as far as we know, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to just put my hand right to that wall. There should be no consistency of that because there's floating around in there. On the other hand, why is any one atom holding together? From what I can see, as soon as the atom came together like that, it should have caused a nuclear explosion. And, and why is it not doing that? Well, right here. In Jesus, all things consist. All things hold together. It's Jesus, right? He's holding it. He's holding you. He's holding your marriage. He's holding your family. He's holding you. And, and if Jesus isn't holding us, everything just falls apart, right? nuclear explosion, and we just get to that point and say, Jesus, in you, Lord, hold on to me, because 
Only in you do I consist, maintain, sustain, be fruitful. And of course, one day, Jesus is going to say, no more. And everything's going to melt with a fervent heat. And there's going to be no heavens, no earth. It's all going to melt. And then he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. In Colossians 1.18, he says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In all things, he may have, what? Preeminence. There it is. The firstbornness. <laughs> Get this, guys. He says, Nothing exists that I didn't make. All the heavens, all the stars, all creation, the smallest amoeba, every human, everything that's been made, I've made. And what's the greatest of all my creation? The church. Do, do we get this? That God so loves the church, is what he says in Ephesians 5, that he gave his life. Jesus says, I'm going to make the church. I'm going to build the church. The gates of hell, they're not going to get in the way of this. And then he goes on to teach us that I'm going to design the church. I'm going to be the sustainer of the church. I'm going to be so active that I'm going to constantly, day by day, second by second, wash and clean and get this church to be this holy bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle. So the next time you want to say something bad about church, you're telling Jesus, his bride to be, is ugly, stupid, hypocrite, not very holy. Whoa, I personally have been making sure this is holy. And we need to understand the value of what's happening right here, right now. Because everything in us, everything in the world says, diminish Jesus. He's not God. Oh, you can say he's an angel, that's fine. You can say he's a man, that's okay. You can say he's a great man, you can say he's a great angel. But don't say he is God, the second person of the Trinity. Well, we need to say he is. And guess what? He's not building skyscrapers in New York. He's not building new mountains. Jesus is building one thing right now. And it's the most precious thing. Outside of his scars and our tears in a bottle, the only other thing's going to be in heaven is the church. This is the most precious thing. This is his focus. This is his energy. He's given us to the church. We are all pieces of this building, of this body. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's an eye. We are all together as living stones, holy. God's put us together as pleases him. Well, I don't like that stone. Why don't you go to the Assembly of God Church over there? I'm putting the stones where I want to put the stones. You just, this is my church. I'm building it. Well, I just don't like that stone. It sort of rubs up against me. No, he's, he's doing it. And Jesus says, am I worried about being preeminent in all creation? No, I am. Where, where is the place I might not end up preeminent? The most important thing that's in all creation, my church. And he says plainly, he is the head, the creator, the designer, the sustainer. He's brought us together to reveal himself that we might know him more and more. He's anointed teachers and pastors and evangelists and prophets to bring us into full maturity to the fullness of Christ himself, to a perfect united man, to a man strong in the, the Lord, to a church giving him all the preeminence and all the glory. And in verse 19, and it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Here's what the Father said. We see in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God, referring to the Father, also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. What do you mean? All the fullness of God can be revealed in Jesus Christ. Don't let the mighty man glory in his might, the rich man in his riches, the wise man in his wisdom, but glory in this, that, we, that you understand and know me. This is your glory. Our glory is that we can know him and better and better and better and of his fullness would dwell in Jesus. And he is the head of this church. And so we now, as the body of Christ, should, in, we should be an icon. Calvary Chapel Red Bluff is an icon of Jesus. And then you click on Jesus and you get the fullness of God now in the second person of the Trinity. You see, the Father is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Look at what Jesus says throughout the Gospel of John. I say nothing unless the Father tells me to speak it. I do nothing unless the Father shows me to do it. Of myself, I speak nothing. All that I've spoken is from the Father, that men would see my good works, and it would, could, could not be questioned that all my works give glory to the Father. And then Jesus says, the Father is greater than I in John. It's a specific word. It doesn't mean greater in substance. It's simply a word of authority. The Father is an authority over me. I am submitted to the Father. God so loved the world. Son, I need you to go and be in human flesh and die, be tortured, a man according to grief and sorrow, and raise again. Jesus, the Son, joyfully goes and does this. And then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will never reveal anything to you unless I tell him to reveal it. And so we see communication within God. God didn't need us to communicate. I'm so bored of here, I have nobody to talk to. <laughs> Jesus didn't make us because, well, now life's interesting. Jesus didn't need us. He was complete in himself. Communication, humility, love, all things that God needed to fulfill him were within the triunity of God. He saved us because he wants us. This is the next week message, but of his fullness. In Colossians 2.9, we're going to get there in a, in a few months, but it says this, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Can't get clearer than that. So if you notice the term, all things, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Colossians 1, 15 to 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible, invisible, with thrones or dominions, principalities, powers. Here it is again. All things were created through him and for him, for his pleasure. And he is before what? All things. And in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, what? All the fullness should dwell. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, God's glory, the Father's glory, the triunity, uh, God in his completeness, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. And then skipping down to verse 16, John 1, 16. And of his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, grace unto grace, grace, all truth in Jesus. We click on that icon. We click on Calvary Chapel, Red Bluff. God is here to reveal to us all truth. 
and then he's going to reveal his grace. You know, the word grace is all we need and more. But he says, no, I'm going to give you all you need and more, and then I'm going to give you all you need and more again. And grace, and grace, and grace. And so what should be seen here? Jesus, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness. When we blow it, what does the Lord do? Grace, <laughs> mercy, kindness, understanding. He knows our frame. As a father pities his child, so the Lord pities us. He remembers that we're but dust. That's the old King James. I had a guy come up one time and, and say, you know, I've been a Christian a few months, but I don't know what butt dust is. And, and I said, what are you talking about? And then I wrote, oh yeah, and dust. He remembers we're just dust. And then a, one of the pastors came up and said, you know, the Psalms a few, a little bit before that in the old King James says our life is but vapor. And I said, it's actually better translation. We're but dust and but vapor, but God has mercy on us, right? He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. So what are we to do? We're to remember your frame, your butt dust, your butt vapor. You're human, you're a sinner. You, you, things you don't wanna do, you do. The things you, do, you don't wanna do, you do. Things you do wanna do, you don't do. Is that like every day? So I know that's gonna happen, so what do I do? Be just like Jesus, of his fullness we've received. That's the truth about our human flesh. We're all a bunch of hypocrites, sinners, strugglers, but we just, the righteous man falls seven times and gets up seven times because of his fullness we're receiving. I have faith in the fullness through Jesus, grace upon grace. Lord, thank you again for your word and let it be inscribed deep within our hearts that we give you the preeminence in every moment, in every word, in every relationship, at work, especially here, that the most important thing of all creation, your church, your precious bride, the sheep of your pasture, there's no greater love than the love you have for us in your church. Let us walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you in every respect. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you all. Have a great evening in the Lord.